forever. Dog. Before we start the show, I want to quickly tell you about one of the funniest podcasts out there right now. It's called The Unofficial Expert, and you can listen to it right here, right now, on the Forever Dog Podcast Network. If you love sex and dating podcasts like I do, or comedy podcasts as I do, or Forever Dog podcasts like Las Culturistas and Seek Treatment, or any of the Forever Dog podcasts, I listen to all of them, there are that many hours in the day, you're going to love The Unofficial Expert. On The Unofficial Expert, Sydney Washington and Marie Fauston sit down with your favorite comedians who claim to be experts in very specific fields like flirting, porn, daddy issues, online dating, cookouts. One of these things is not like the others. Stalking. That's a great episode. Sex toys, runaway brides. Sydney and Marie make the final decision on their expertise and decide whether or not to crown them an unofficial expert. Sydney and Marie are unapologetic, exciting, and incredibly funny, and you need to get to know them and their hilarious, honest comedy ASAP. So subscribe to The Unofficial Expert right now at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It's very funny. Check it out. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in tonight, or whenever the time is right. It's the Writer's Panel with Ben Blacker, and it's starting now. Oh, yeah. Anyway, thank you all for being here. Uh, so I started doing the writer's panel because really it's all for selfish reasons. Uh, you know, I, I wanted to hear about how the stuff I loved got made. Um, and I was lucky enough to be, you know, adjacent to enough writers and showrunners that they would come out and talk about that. And it was at a time when nobody was really talking to writers. It was sort of before this huge wave of uh, great television. So, so I started having these conversations because I wanted to learn things. I'm sure the same reason you started listening to these conversations. Um, and after 400 episodes and like 2,000 writers, uh, I'm sure I still have a lot to learn, but I feel like I can't do that until I'm learning it on the job. Uh, and I've gotten those opportunities, so that's happening. Um, so I'm, what I'm trying to do now is have a different kind of conversation. What I'm trying to do now is the, have the conversation that I feel like writers are having when we meet up with each other that's not just about how we write. Um, the, these are the conversations that are interesting to me right now. Uh, I was telling our, my producer, Brett, please give a round of applause to producer Brett. <laughs> Uh, I was telling producer Brett, and he did not like to hear this, but about every 40, 50 episodes or so, I'm like, ah, I'm done. I don't need to do it anymore. And then I wind up having an amazing conversation, as I did maybe just a month ago, with a couple of our guests uh, who are here tonight. And it reminds me why I love doing this and why I love talking to writers. Um, and I'm lucky, I really do consider myself lucky, that you all are interested in hearing those conversations as well. So give yourselves a round of applause. That was a tepid round of applause for yourselves. I thought you would do better. You, I know that this audience is full of writers because that was a round of applause full of self-loathing. <laughs> Good job. Um, so my job tonight is to bring out a bunch of writers who I think are awesome, uh, some of whom have been on the podcast, some of whom have not, uh, and really just let them go. Uh, I, you know, there are some things that I want to talk about, but they have amazing insights to share with all of us. So listen, the re only reason I'm appearing in front of humans right now is because I have this comic book coming out on Halloween. It's called Hexwives. Uh, yeah, it's going to be great. 
The, the artist is amazing. The colorist is amazing. Uh, it's about witches. The pitch for the book was, what if Samantha from Bewitched uh, didn't know she were a pow- was a powerful witch, and she's being held uh, as a suburban housewife against her will? So that first, act, uh, first arc is about her figuring out what she is and overthrowing the patriarchy. Um, yeah, it's... Um, so listen, the thing I've learned about comic books recently is you have to pre-order them. If everybody in this audience calls up their local comic book shop and says, I want a copy of Hexwives, it's only $4, they're going to order it for you, they're going to hold it for you, you go pick it up on Halloween, uh, and then I get to do like 25 issues instead of just six issues. And I have 100 issues I want to do, so please order Hexwives um, this month. I would appreciate it. It's the most you can do. (laughs) All right, let's get to it. Um, Ladies and gentlemen, we have an unbelievable panel. I want to bring up my first two guests. Uh, Our first guest has written on such shows as Haven, Hand of God, most recently Anne with an E, and CBS's upcoming Red Line. You can follow her on Twitter at Shernald Edwards. Please welcome Shernald Edwards. Thank you, Charles. And to join her, she has written on such shows as Leverage, Castle, Once Upon a Time, The Punisher, Cloak and Dagger. She's working on the upcoming Painkiller Jane uh, adaptation. You can follow her on Twitter, at Kit Moxie. Please welcome Christine Boylan. Thank you both for being here. Um, I was mentioning you all earlier in the introduction saying uh, the podcast that we did was one of my recent favorites. It reminded me why I love doing the show. And what I loved the most was right off the bat, Sharnold was like, let's get into it. Coming in hot. (laughs) So I get warm. I emailed you both today saying (laughs) we're going to get real hot real fast Um, because I feel like, you know, you guys have both worked on a number of great shows. You've worked for really terrific showrunners. You've worked for not-so-terrific showrunners. We don't have to get into naming names. I do want to keep this positive. But what I really would love to hear about is working for male showrunners. Uh, it's something that we only touched on when we talked last month. Um, but there is a different way, I feel, that men go about running a show than a woman would. Would you two care to speak about that? Yes. <laughs> we actually had a huge conversation about this very thing just now backstage with everybody. So You're supposed to save it. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> so we're going to do that bit okay. with, with everybody. There, there's, okay. a, there's one aspect of it okay. that we found. I love that you all planned, because I didn't. We didn't plan. <laughs> we didn't plan. It was just, just, it was just this. It was just this. Um, and then we realized we weren't listening to you. We were like, oh, shit, do we need to go out now? So we can't I'm used here. to it. Yeah. So... Oh, so so, uh, for example, uh, you mentioned when we spoke on the podcast, uh, Christine, working for John Rogers, oh, yeah. which was a good experience for you. Love John. Uh, you learned a lot from John. Um, but you have since worked for women. You've worked for other men. What's the difference? And, and is there a difference? Um, it's hard to say. Hold uh, Yeah, right, microphone. Uh, hard to say, hard to say. Um, it, it feels... I don't know if I can generalize so much as to say like there's a straight up difference. You know, there's always that Chris Rock like, 
men are like this, women are like this, like, which kind of comedy that makes me sort of crazy. All his other stuff is great, just that one bit I don't like. <laughs> um, so it's hard for me to generalize, but there is an issue that we talked about that we're going to bring up. There's, that's one thing that men don't think about that women constantly think about mm-hmm. for the group. Um, attention to female characters. And I'm going to say the male showrunners I've worked for have been all across the board. Mm-hmm. They've been in places where they are so overly attentive to, oh my God, are we, are we treating the, the, the female characters like humans and giving them enough and, and like overdoing it to the point where I'm like, oh my God, every, just pretend everybody's a, a Ken doll down there and let's just, <laughs> let's just do, let's just, you know, make them all people. And that's good. Like over attention is kind of beautiful. If you're going to err. Yeah, that's the I way mean, yeah. to go. Like, like I say, overdo everything and then pull back. You know, whatever. But like, so that that's a difference. I don't see that with the women as much. Mm-hmm. The women are, um, you know, I've worked for fewer women showrunners. Um, Jenna Bands, who's mm-hmm. amazing. Uh, Jenna, you know, Jenna's from the Shonda school, and also working with Shonda uh, that year. Um, it, it's all about like how much pain can you put your characters through, mm-hmm. male and female, just pain, 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 mm-hmm. pain. And there is something to be said of like. Writing from a place of pain. I mean, my whole like pitch for Painkiller Jane was like women's rage and pain. Let's talk about that, which the guys were, were fascinated by. <laughs> so hopefully well, it stays in the script. I don't do know. You, do you feel like that's a story that hasn't been properly told? Oh, that's a good question. An exploration of women's pain. rage and pain. Yeah. No, it hasn't been told. No, we need more. A lot of it. Um, and there are many aspects of it, but mm. that's not what we're talking about right in this second. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, I mean, a little bit, you know, it's the thing I like about genre. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I feel like sci-fi gets closer, mm-hmm. you know. Um, how, how so? I'm curious uh, about and about, why do you think? I was thinking about Battlestar Galactica today, mm-hmm. because I love it, and I haven't watched it in a long time. I watched, and I also watched Strange Days last night, and I haven't seen that in like 15 years. Yeah. That's a movie. It's a movie. Okay. But um, just sort of looking at like, oh, Catherine Bigelow's lens on mm-hmm. a James Cameron story, right? Mm-hmm. And I don't know anything about how that movie was made. I was just watching it to watch it for references. And first of all, Angela Bassett looks the same. <laughs> how dare she? How dare she? Uh, but just it, it, the way a, a woman, so much is talked about like the female gaze or whatever, but like the way a woman looks at things. And I think on a show like, Battlestar, we got the point of view of those female Cylons and also our female uh, soldiers is the wrong word, that basically like uh, pilots mm-hmm. um, and crew mm-hmm. in a way that was so sort of like, I'm going to mangle this quote, but Virginia Woolf said you have to be of all sexes in order to create, right? Hmm. And I feel like Ron Moore's get in there. Ron Moore's in there, <laughs> mm-hmm. in a way. You know, I mean, he's doing stuff on Outlander that's like crazy. Yeah. But on Battlestar, you see it. I felt, I felt like my female experience was being validated in a way um, by this like alien creature that had nothing to do with me. And do you, but do you think it's because it is sci-fi because it's removed from reality that it was easier to get that through, or whatever, whatever the backstory to it was? Do you think? the genre allowed it to happen? I mean, metaphor is the best way to process anything, yeah. I, th- I think. And also, like, even as a writer, like, I'm afraid to approach stuff head on, so uh, metaphor helps. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Chernel, let's talk about Anne with an E, yeah. uh, which was run by a, a mm-hmm. woman, right? Yeah. Uh, how did it differ 
sort of in, in broad senses, again, we're asking you to generalize, yeah. from um, shows you had worked on in the past. Fundamentally, and uh, we had an all-female room. We had a female showrunner. And it was the first time in my career that I could say the word period <laughs> without people freaking the fuck out. Is that right? Yeah, you cannot say period in a room where there are dudes. Even like one, we, we could do one, could just to make him uncomfortable. We did it on Punisher. Yeah. Because one guy was like feeling, feeling yeah. really like, I can talk about that. Yeah. And I was like, really? And yeah. he's like, oh no, I know all about this because of my girlfriend. And I was like, yeah. okay, oh. let's go. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Let's talk cups. Yeah. Let's talk, let's let's talk everything. reusables. Let's talk, everything. let's talk disposables. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't see that episode of Punisher. No. <laughs> <laughs> it was a sidebar. Interesting. Because it was a woman's issue. <laughs> but, yeah. But we did talk about so it. So how was um, the tenor in the Andrew? Yeah, so there was, there was, um, you know, there was a comfort, mm-hmm. you know, with having um, an experienced woman, a woman who's been on very muscular shows, mm-hmm. if you will, uh, creating a space and a safe space for us to the point where, you know, if any delivery water dude came in and used our bathroom, I was incensed. It's <laughs> like, what are you doing here? Um, so in that sense, you know, it was a very general ease of of sharing and stuff like that and in most writers rooms it's it's a safe space but it is uh, different mm-hmm. um so i've had uh you know my first showrunner here uh, his name is matt beginnis and he was like the uncle mm-hmm. and he, i love him right i love him so much right i worked with him he, too. what, what him. show was right? this on Oh this is Haven. Okay. Uh, and he's extraordinary. He's like a tall, brusque ginger. Um, and he's got three daughters and a wife. So he's a minority in his house. And he's not afraid of women. So when I came in on Haven, we had a, a proportionate number of women in the room. And eventually, um, we had a woman co-showrunner. Um, Gab Stanton, but he was not afraid of anything to the point where I think he's made quite a career of being like the dude in female rooms, right? Like on Bold Type and in and another show. So he was great. Um, I worked for black male showrunners, which was a treat. <laughs> um, in that, you know, they were both kind of like older brother, mm-hmm. older brothers to me. Um, and one of them was just like, why are you writing like that? That sucks. And I was like, oh, hold on. Let me change that and get back to you. And he's like, yeah, do that. You know? And, and it was cool because I learned. Right. And, and it um, feels like that's about the relationship. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. he knew he could get away with saying it yeah. that, that bluntly to you. Well, I don't know if he cared. But, you know, <laughs> right? he, was, no, I'm saying, he was honest. <laughs> and then it was upon me to realize, okay, that writing was different than what he wants. And let me figure it out. Um, but in terms of addressing uh, the women's stories, you know, there has been, I've seen lacking um, in, in focus and even, I want to, sometimes I interpret it as interest and then I don't know if it's a lack of interest so much as it's a lack of knowing or connection or thinking that you've addressed the thing, but you haven't addressed that thing at all. Um, and then I've had like old crotchety white grandpas, you know, so, and I can, I can roll with an old crotchety white grandpa. They always but, have good uh, stories of the old do. days of yeah. when they got paid a lot more than yeah, we Yeah, I know, all the now. residuals. <laughs> oh my God. Oh my God, the, the repeats. Oh, oh my God. God. The lunches, the spreads. Oh, the lunches. Oh, oh my God. God. Yeah, we had like a month to write our draws and we'd we, go up to the cabin <laughs> and oh man. We always order oh, lobster. The days, oh the surf days. And turf. Good Lord, what happened to the industry? Well, you did, Chernobyl. You were tapping to the industry. <laughs> you got 
always got here late. That's what I heard. <laughs> Let me ask you, really, like, was yeah. there that feeling that they were having trouble with the, the changing industry? At times. Mm-hmm. You know, I have worked for people who seem to have had trouble with the diversification of the writer's room. Um, they try to push it down. A lot of people try to push it, push it down. down. That's not good. Let it out. And then you don't like, know what the problem is. It's like, no. oh, did you have a fight with someone at home? Yeah. Or are you mad at me yeah. for me or because yeah. of this draft? Or are you mad at someone else and exactly. I'm just in the room? Like, what's happening? Yeah. Just let me know who you're mad at, even if it's me, and I can roll with it. And, and how do um, you roll with it when that is the issue? Well, you, 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 you focus. <laughs> uh, if you're a black woman, you're quite accustomed. Mm-hmm. You code switch. You ignore, you eventually get angry at times, <laughs> um, but that has to be, that has to be calculated. Yeah. And, uh, and you have to be in a position to, like don't get mad when you're a staff writer, because you'll never work. Mm. Don't get mad when you're a staff writer. Don't, don't get Cry physically mad. Yeah. In the car, in the car, on the way home, yeah. like anybody else yeah. in Los Angeles. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That is what you, you have to That's sing it out. That's why we have the community. Cry it out. Yeah. That's why you're in the car. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Uh, thank you. This has all been very instructive. Uh, I thank you for teasing what's to come as well. I can't wait. Let's get to it. Uh, but first, uh, our next guests are both returning pals. Um, she has worked on Terriers before going to The Walking Dead, where she started as a story editor in 2011, which is also when she first appeared on the Writers' Panel podcast. It's episode 23. What? Yeah, right? (laughs) Since then, uh, she is stuck with The Walking Dead, and she is currently the showrunner for season nine. You can follow her on Twitter at Angela Kang. Please welcome Angela Kang. Thank you for being here, Angela. And another returning pal, um, again, humble beginnings, uh, assisting the producers as well as Vince Gilligan on The X-Files and The Lone Gunman, as well as more assisting on Grey's Anatomy, Mad Men, and other shows. She then staffed on Breaking Bad in season three and is now executive producer on Better Call Saul, as well as developing the hopefully upcoming Welcome to Night Vale program. Follow her, yeah, (laughs) we're gonna get into it. Follow her on Twitter at Jen Hutchison. It's Jen with a G. Please welcome Jenny Hutchison. Thank you both for being here. Um, listen, I read off your resumes just now. Um, for both of you, they're kind of focused on one show. You have stuck with these shows, these producers, uh, for five, six, seven, nine years now. Um, And my question is, to what do you owe your longevity? How were you able to stick with it when other writers who were part of those staffs fell away or got fired or found other things to do? What's (laughs) What's the secret to being 10 years on a show? Um... Well, first of all, you have to kind of like where you are because people also leave because they're unhappy Mm -hmm. um, and they can. So kind of finding a place where you fit in and you like the people that you're working with and you like the sensibility is really important. Um, I guess, I don't know. I mean, I got very lucky in that, um, you know, the Breaking Bad universe was sort of something that I liked and, and was 
fit with my sensibility as a writer, you know, being very character driven and, and a little bit odd and tonally weird. Um, and so I just kind of learned that voice so well and found a way to integrate it into my own and just managed to kind of keep growing as a writer on those shows and luckily worked for showrunners who uh, were very supportive of that, the idea of like, you know, building your team kind of from within and having them move up the ranks. Yeah, I think, you know, to, to echo a bit what, what I can't talk right now. Well, to, you're in the perfect place. Let me I rewind. <laughs> to echo a bit what, what Jenny's saying, um, you know, I do think it's got to be the right match. And for me, The Walking Dead was sort of a dream job. You know, I I was such a fan of the comics and of the first season of the show before I ever went on to it. You know, like I was on Terriers. Um, at the time that the first season aired, and I just watched it with the audience like everybody else, and you know had flipped through like every uh, issue of that comic and um so when Terriers was not picked up again, my manager asked me what what show would you like and I was like, my dream job would be walking dead I'm probably not going to get that, but you know that, that that's my dream job and so you know, I just feel like I was really lucky that I staffed there i've always loved that kind of you know I love zombie stuff like I love the kind of fantasy type of storytelling. But I also love that it's really grounded in character and it's, you know, they're emotional stories. They're a little theatrical at times. And, you know, it just was a very good fit for me. And then I think the other stuff is sort of like, I don't know, like I, I get along with people pretty well. I'm collaborative and so I, I don't know. It's like sometimes like you just go like, here's the stuff I could control, which is like I try to work really hard and, and do what's expected and go beyond what's expected. And then, I don't know, there's an element of luck and being in the right place at the right time. And it's been a fun ride. Yeah. I, Jenny, you touched on something that is interesting, I think, uh, about working for showrunners who do want to foster development, foster uh, writers from within and learning through that process. Uh, for both of you, Looking back at you know your first year on those shows, is there something you wish you could tell that writer now? Well, it's interesting because I don't know if I would have heard it, you know, like anything that I that I said because I think I would say stuff like you know trust your voice and pitch more and you know be realize that it's okay to not always when you're a writer's assistant and you're pitching in the room, you always want only your best ideas because you're trying to impress people when you're a staff writer or a writer on staff, you can pitch the bad version of things. In fact, you're encouraged to. So it was a little bit of a, there was a little bit of a hangover, you know, from going from writer's assistant to staff writer of like, oh, I got to make sure everything I pitch is perfect. And, you know, there is no perfect. So, so maybe that just sort of relax. But I also think that's something you kind of have to learn as you go, you know, finding your voice in a room. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Because I, you know, one of the things that was not on my official resume is Christine and I were on a show oh called Day One that never <laughs> went to air. But that was my first staff job. And it, I was terrified, like, every she single day. She was amazing. <laughs> no, I, I I just felt like, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know why am I here. Oh, my God. I was so lucky to get this job. I'm an idiot. I sound so stupid. I don't know how to pitch. I don't know how to talk. Like, oh. You know, but it's like, I feel like that's most people's experience like early on and it's it's just because you're in because like kind of the beautiful thing about television is usually you're in a room with people of different levels and by the time somebody is a co-executive producer they have so much experience under their belt that it's kind of like those initial nerves of 
gone away. And even then, sometimes when you're like first starting a season or whatever, you kind of go like, okay, like I want to like I want to have the good ideas, but yeah, it's like you you just you don't know to relax. Like I have a staff writer who's like brand new to TV um, on this season of the show, and it's like. I and my other co-executive producers and it, like we're all so just like nurturing to her because we we've all been on the show for a long time and we just want her to know like the things you say are smart we value it you may think that this is not like making it exactly into the show but it's still like informing our thinking and it's you know it's like I think that's one of the benefits of being on a long-running show is like you remember that journey up the ladder as well. So you want the other people to have a good experience coming up. Yeah, I, when I was uh, earlier on, I had a, a co-EP, a woman, take me aside and say, your opinions have value. No matter what they are, your opinions have value. And I was like a story editor. Mm -hmm. And I was still very, very nervous and very much a perfectionist. And she was like, your ideas have worth, your opinions have value. It's it just just talk. And I was like, Okay. <laughs> Terrified. She was great in that room, that weird room, by the way. It was a weird room full of the most amazing, brilliant people it's, ever. I, it came up a it lot a when room. we first started the oh podcast. God. Like, everyone was in that room. Heavy hitters. Yeah. And then and, and us. Like, I, I was just, like an exec story editor. Like, you know, you know yeah. it was early on for me, too. You're but, heavy yeah. hitters now. Um, Jenny, was there, in going from assistant to a writer on the staff, was there an adjustment that had to be made in the way you presented yourself to the other writers, or the way that, did they have to adjust themselves in the way they regarded you? <laughs> um, I was lucky because the writers were all very uh, supportive, mm -hmm. as opposed to, there was no feeling like of being right. threatened, which is always nice. Um, the thing that was sort of the biggest difference was, you know, when you're an assistant, you tend to agree with your boss at all times. And you're sort of there as like, you know, cheerleader and, and making sure that they understand that their ideas are great. And sometimes as a writer, you're in conflict with your showrunner, just as far as pitching ideas. And so I think there was a little bit of adjustment on both sides of me having differing opinions and feeling okay to say that, yeah. story-wise, not value opinions, <laughs> just, you know, like, I don't agree with this Skylar plot beat, yeah. you know? Um, and also my boss understanding that I was going to be doing that and, and no longer just like, yeah, boss, that's great. Um, <laughs> and it wasn't contentious and it wasn't it wasn't you know there was no bad blood but it was definitely uncomfortable for me at first because it was like such an adjustment of going from like that people pleasing to still wanting to please but also you're there to have a voice and you're there yeah. to like have a different opinion and so that was a little weird sometimes well and it seems like you had to make yourself aware of that before you could actually do it and eventually become comfortable yeah exactly yeah. Uh, and Angela a similar question you know, you, you've come up through the ranks on this show. Now that you are running the show, what are you, what are you doing differently? What are you doing the same to how you were brought up uh, as a writer there? I think, you know, the, the thing that's interesting is, like, the show's been going for so many years, and there's so much about it that has always kind of worked. You know, mm -hmm. like, I think we're very lucky in that we have a room that is full of kind of like gentle nerds. It's nice people. <laughs> so I think um, that I wanted to, like I wanted to preserve that feel of it. Um, I definitely run a little more of like a regular 
um, room just in the office. I'm in the office a lot more, Scott. Um, he kind of took to working um, mm-hmm. from home a lot. He was totally plugged in, like mm-hmm. constantly emailing or on the phone or whatever. But it's just that's like he needed the, the space away to kind of concentrate and be with his kid too. But it's like for me, like I kind of like putting in my time at the office so when I go home and with my with my kid, like it's, it's cleaner. So it's just it's a slight difference in process. Mm-hmm. So I kind of like to like bounce around with everybody and check in and and do things that way. Like I, I have a lot of conversations with people through the day. Um, so that's a little bit different process-wise. I think, you know, it's really interesting. Even even in the what what Jenny was saying, like going from an assistant to on staff, I had a bit of the same experience going from being on staff, like as a high-level person on yeah. staff, but even that to running the show, but still having Scott as an executive producer that I talk to and deal with story with. And, you know, even though, like, he really, like, I run all the day-to-day, like, mm-hmm. he is overseeing a universe, and so there's things that we have to talk about. And there's been an adjustment on both sides for us, too, of, like, sometimes, like, whereas I on staff might have, like, argued a point, but then eventually been, like you're the boss, that's your vision. It's like now sometimes we get into things where it's like we argue a point and I'm like, well, I really respect your feedback on this. I'm still going to go this other way. And so, you know, so that's, it's just a change. And so I think um, it's been interesting. And then, you know, like we have a very good, I think, um, set dynamic to uh, just sort of an organic hashtag. This is so annoying, but it's like, you know, like internally, like we would talk about the Walking Dead family. We all call each other family. And, um, you know, I always hear Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul has a similar sort of vibe from people who've done both shows, but it's just, you know, it's like people are very tightly knit. And so people started hashtagging things TWD family on, on Twitter and Instagram and things like that. But it's one of the most popular things about the show is just the sense of the family dynamic and how much fun everybody has with each other. Sure. So that's definitely something that, like, I don't want to mess with in any way. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like if people are, like, happy working with each other, that's it goes a long way when you have long days and hard stuff to do. Well, I'm sure, I'm sure you will keep that up. Uh, please give a round of applause to all of our panelists thus far. And let's welcome the rest of them. Uh, you know her from... Here we go. (laughs) Shameless parenthood complications turn Washington spies into the Badlands. She's currently developing Hugh Howey's Wool for AMC, where she is under a deal. Please welcome LaToya Morgan. Thank you. Um, Latoya, before I bring the other panelists out, there was something I wanted to ask you about. Oh, follow her on Twitter at Morgan Morganic Inc. Inc. Um, there was something I wanted to ask you about, which is this um, inclusion initiative, which was yeah. mentioned as part of your AMC deal. Can you talk about that a little bit? Uh, yeah, I the uh, impetus for it started out of pure anger. Uh, I don't know. If Always you guys, a good starting point. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I don't know if you guys have seen the Color of Change report that came out um, a few months ago, but it was really a breakdown of the makeup of different writers' rooms around Hollywood. And, you know, the two worst offenders were CBS, which I'm kind of not surprised. (laughs) But the other one was AMC. And I was like, oh my God, this this is actually shocking. But 
as a, a writer who's gone to different shows for the network, I'm usually the only woman and usually the only person of color in the writers' rooms. So I was literally in Ireland shooting my episode of Into the Badlands, and I called up an exec that I love there uh, named Erica Weinstein. Shout out to her. Um, and we just talked for probably three and a half hours about how can we fix this? What if, and my, my uh, thing was, if you need me to do more in order to help bring young writers into the fold and help them through the development process at AMC, I am more than happy to do that. And so that's how it really got started. And uh, AMC was really, really excited about it. Um, we're just now getting it off the ground, and so we're putting in all the infrastructure and getting our you know, website ready and all that stuff, but yeah, it was great. Yay. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> Single-handedly saving AMC yeah, from anger, itself. Yeah, anger gets a lot of stuff done, I gotta say. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, when it is up and running, do you know where people will be able to find uh, information about the initiative? Yeah, and uh, as of right now, you can uh, email uh, amcinclusion um, at g- gmail.com. Great. Perfect. I hope people will do that. Yeah, or uh, hit me up on Twitter. I'm always there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. Let's please welcome the rest of our panelists. Uh, she has worked on NYPD Blue. Uh, started out as a playwright. Worked on NYPD Blue. Desperate Housewives is the creator of the American version of Prime Suspect. Uh, worked on Deception. Bates Motel is the creator of the Hugh, Lo- Hugh Laurie vehicle Chance on Hulu and is developing the hit podcast Dirty John for television. Please welcome Alexandra Cunningham. <laughs> Our next guest got her start on Smallville. She then went on to work on such shows as Melrose Place, The Vampire Diaries, and she's working on the upcoming Batwoman series, which we'll talk about a little bit. Please welcome Caroline Dries. Thank you for being here. And finally, um, you know our... Next guest from all the shows that you love and have watched for the past 20 years, including Charmed, Alias, Lost, Brothers and Sisters, Fringe, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Uh, She created Midnight Texas, as well as uh, working sort of spearheading the new Buffy non-reboot, but (laughs) continuation. Please welcome Monica Breen. All right, I want to ask, uh, Monica, starting with you, and then we can sort of come this way, about working on these big IP, uh, because you guys have all have this stuff, had this stuff announced in the past six months or so. Um, I'm curious to hear, one, why you are the person for the job. What, what about, what? <laughs> I think listeners want to hear that too. Um, but, but what's your take on it? What makes you the, the right voice to help bring this thing to the screen? like it. Um, <laughs> Listen, that's a good I mean, reason. That, here's the, I mean, it's very funny because I think when you take on a big IP, you have to find the story that's important for you because it can't be... The IP exists. There's another show. People can go look at it and it's beautiful and it's wonderful and they should love it, but it exists. So what you're creating has to be new and it has to have a different point of view and it has a 
has to have a reason to be in the world right now, not just that they hired you and paid you. But I'll, I mean, that is a reason too. But, um, but did you have to find the reason that it feels resonant in this moment to mm-hmm. tell that story? And on Buffy, what is that reason for you personally? I cannot say that. Oh. <laughs> Otherwise people will come at me and, and hurt me. So, um, but it is something but, you personally connect to. But it is something to. I, I mean, I am... I was in graduate school when Rodney from sociology came to me. It's like, you have to watch this show. I mean, it's got the most epic love story and it's doing some important feminist work. And I was like, all right, let me check this out. And since then I was a fan. And so there's something for me when I made the transition from academia to writing, for me, there was something really wonderful about having a show that was doing important work on a social level and telling stories that I felt like I wasn't seeing other places. And as an aspiring television writer, that's what you want. Like, you want to have to say something about the world. And so, I don't know, I'm rambling now. No, that's um, <laughs> this was a great answer. Did you want to weigh in, Latoya? No, no, no. I was just going to say, sometimes it's like hard to articulate why, you know, you feel like you're the right person for it. So I I was feeling your pain. (laughs) I mean, sometimes it's as simple as it came to me and I know what it is. And there are stories, there are times I've tried to pitch something. I'm like, nothing is coming. My brain doesn't (laughs) work. So sometimes I don't know how to describe that as sort of inspiration or how your brain works. But, you know, it comes to you. Yeah, I mean, just loving the material very often yeah. is enough. Was that the case for you? And, yeah, and, for, for me, with well, I was a big fan of the series years ago, and I'd read it, and um, I thought it was coming out as a movie, and then uh, I was at a meeting at AMC, and they said they got the rights, and I said, what? I, I love those books. And they said that uh, Hugh Howie, who wrote the books, was sitting down with several uh, people to consider for show running, and I said, just get me in the room so I can just tell him I love him. And so uh, I sat down and had a meeting with him and we really just hit it off and, and connected. And then they uh, told me later on that uh, I, he ended up picking me out of the five or six people he was meeting with. And so I was over the moon, ran around my house a little bit. Um, but I, I think the thing that drew me to the story was that uh, at its core, it's a story about this young woman who comes from kind of like the wrong side of the track. She comes from the bottom of this silo, and she rises to um, a a place of significance in the silo. And so I think of myself as a perpetual underdog, and so that really resonated with me. (laughs) It's going to be a transition for you when you're running this huge hit show. (laughs) (laughs) Think of yourself as an underdog. (laughs) I'm the one who's not supposed to be here. How am I on this panel with all these wonderful writers? I don't know. (laughs) Wait, that's what I thought about myself. Right? Wait, we, do we all do we all feel that? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, yes, right there. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Everybody, stop. I don't know if you heard the audience before. They feel that. I way don't feel like that at all. I feel like I'm supposed to be here. I feel like I deserve to be here. Yes, yes. I, I'm good at what I do, and so are you guys. Stop playing. Wait, hold, I'm gonna pause this for a second. Duly noted. Sure. Where do you get your confidence? <laughs> Out of my ass. That's where it comes from. It's working. It's working. Out of my butt. Um, but while you're talking to me, yeah. um, I can I can speak a little bit to this the IP situation that you're talking yeah, about in that sometimes things come to you and you're not that big a fan. Mm-hmm. 
of it. And sometimes you've been in a development deal with a studio for a really, really, really long time. And sometimes they're like, give us one last chance. And you're like, okay, but I really want to be out of this. And they say, here's a book. And then you read the book and you're like, oh, this is interesting. So um, I'm doing something real, real, real quick. It's uh, Fiona Griffith's Mysteries, written by this white dude, set in Wales about a young white woman who's a cop in Wales. And, um, and she's got a thing. She's got a mental thing. And uh, I took that. And I was like, okay. Because she's got this thing where she thinks she's dead. It's a, it's a thing. And I thought, okay, shit. You know who else has trouble feeling like they exist? Mm-hmm. Who has trouble feeling like they deserve to I take up space in say. the world? <laughs> you, know, you know who has to fight shit like that? Black women. There you go. Black women. Please tell me it's still in Wales. <laughs> no. <laughs> it is not. <laughs> now it's in Detroit. And she's black. She's mixed race. And her boss is black. And her boss's boss is black. And everybody is black. Black. <laughs> it's blackity black. And black and black. Although she was adopted by a white family. I kept that part. But it was just like, you know, sometimes when you get stuff like that, you just you do what you want. And, and you do, and you're just like, you guys are going to want this. And they're like, we do. And I was like, I'm throwing two more black people. You still going to want that? <laughs> and they're like, yeah. And I was like, I got one more. And they're like, we're going to talk to Netflix about it. And I was like, okay. So That's amazing. That's how, different... how far along are you on this project? I should be. <laughs> we'll, get you home. we'll get you home and on script. Yeah. Uh, okay. Alex, I want to come back to you and talk about Dirty John for a minute. Talk about uh, tell us a little bit about how you got involved with this project. This is a beloved uh, podcast, especially here yes, in Los people, Angeles. People have listened to it, apparently. Um, you know, it was one of those things where I actually didn't know there was a podcast. I was procrastinating on my previous show, and I went to Long Reads, and all the articles were linked there, and I was like, oh, just one more, just one more. And then I ended up reading the whole thing, and then people started saying, have you heard this podcast? And I was like, what podcast? There's articles. You're dumb, because it's not a podcast. It's a thing you read. And then, so I listened to it, and then in a way that has probably also happened to people up here, my agents called and said, we control this. Do you know what it is? Which they always assume that no one else knows what things are because they don't, because they don't listen to them or read them or anything. So I said, yeah, as a matter of fact, I am interested in that. And I went and I met with the LA Times guys and the... Uh, there were a lot of male executive producers in a room and I walked in and and was the only woman in the room and they said to me, uh, we're slightly concerned about all of the comments on the uh, podcast website and the, and the LA Times website that talk about how stupid this woman is. And I went, she's not stupid. And then I immediately was like, okay, I think maybe I should probably do this because I don't think she's stupid at all in an era where the internet is showing us that all people want is to feel special and seen and to matter and that there are predators out there who are taking everything that you explain is important to you about yourself on the internet and using it against you. Uh, And also the intersection with true crime, which I am the true crime hoe. (laughs) 
<laughs> there is nothing wow. I do not know. Well, we, we can we can talk about this. I'm sure there are other true crime hoes up here. Yeah. But, uh, I, I think I'm know, one of just, those. It, it basically just intersected with a lot of things that I cared about, and also it's you know it's super fun and pulpy and noiry and all of the things that I like. But uh, you know that those were all kind of. Um, Broad reasons. The the show I did before Dirty John, which was Chance, was a, a a novel by Kem Nunn that was about a forensic neuropsychiatrist who dealt with people with traumatic brain injuries. And my daughter was born with a traumatic brain injury. So when I read that book, there were a lot of things that I connected to about it. And then a lot of people who bought it thought it was going to be House Two. So that was unfortunate, but you know that uh, sometimes you connect to things on super personal, very specific, unique to you levels, and sometimes it's you know the, the larger things like like other women up here have talked about, and 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 then you just you, you clue into it, you know you could make it super fun, and that's where I'm at right now, shooting three episodes at the same time. Oh wow! Yeah. I, I have sort of a nuts and bolts story uh, question about that, and in about forming the story for Dirty John, which we know as a finite series. We know how this ends. We know who the characters are. How are you making it its own beast? Because that's part of the adaptation process. Right. Well, you know, we're, we're using the scaffolding of the podcast. Like, obviously, we're not going to leave out any of the things that people enjoyed about the actual podcast. But, you know, I had the podcaster in the room with me, who is Chris Gofford, who did it and also researched all the articles. And, you know, there's I'm not exaggerating, thousands of pages of things that didn't get used. And so it's actually an opportunity to give people what they loved about the podcast. But also, you know, one of the reasons that people are like, this woman's stupid is because it was a great work of investigative journalism that did not take you inside this sort of spell of love that this man cast over this woman, which that's an advantage that Scripted has over a podcast is that I have wonderful actors who are going to show you how difficult it is to look into Eric Bana's eyes and go, eh. (laughs) So so I have that. And and we're going to tell people a lot of things about the story that they don't know also. So it's everything you love and things you don't know you love yet. That's really cool. Great. Uh, Caroline, let's talk in an elliptical way about Batwoman. He says that because I was like, it's it's in the wee earlies of like process of development. So I said like I really can't talk no, about which, it. But, which is the case um, for most people. I'm happy people to talk about what I what yes. I know. Um, but I, yeah, like I, that's a piece of IP where it's incredibly intimidating to be presented with for a million reasons. Um, but I knew that I was the right person for it. I knew that um, my agents thought that, Berlanti thought that, and Warner Brothers thought that. But what I think they just wanted was the press release that says, you know, lesbian showrunner writing lesbian superhero. And so, you know, so they could, you know, hide behind that a little bit. Is that, but is that freeing for you or d- because it means you can sort of get away with stuff or is it harder for you? Um, I guess it's freeing because that, I mean, that's obviously something I'm hopefully like very confident about right now is I'm about to get married. But um, I know that I know that world. I know that world very well and I'm, you know, eager to write about it. And I'm also know the world of that fan base very well and they don't they're not they don't shy away from sort of their opinions about how you're handling (laughs) same sex storylines and stuff. So I'm I'm sort of up for the challenge, I guess. Yeah. Um, did you 
have to find a way in other than sort of the big picture, uh, who this character is, what we kind of know about her from the press releases? Uh, yeah, I had to. F- I thought, okay, this is so obviously a show that I should be writing. She's like this badass superhero. She's so strong. She's so confident. And then I started thinking about it. I'm like, oh, I am nothing like this character. And so that was sort of a realization for me. And I, what I realized is, oh, I'm actually aspiring to be this character, and I can learn from her. And so I think that was sort of that became my way in. And, you know, in story writing, you're supposed to write these stories about characters who change, obviously. And this is a character who knows herself so well, you know, when she's 13 years old. And then when she's 30 years old, she doesn't really have a character arc, you know, that turns her into a superhero. So so that's sort of like my in for her. That's very interesting. Um, This idea of the weight of audience expectations is something I'm curious about uh, before we dig into some more of the good stuff. Um, And Jenny and Angela, uh, you guys are sort of dealing with this both on The Walking Dead and on this Night Vale project, Jenny, uh, which I think there are high expectations for. (laughs) What? Um, No. (laughs) Do you want to talk about wrapping your head around that or how you deal with that? Yeah, I mean... um, also very early days on that as well. And, you know, that was a podcast that I actually started listening to right when I started working on Better Call Saul. We were, I had a commute at the beginning of Better Call Saul, uh, which I don't really now. And so I had been seeing a lot about it on Tumblr. And I was like, okay, I guess I'll, I'll listen to this podcast. And I was very, I just felt very inspired by it. It just sort of unlocked things in my head writing wise. And I was like, oh, this could be a cool TV show. And then immediately put that out of my head. And it wasn't for a couple years that, or a little while before I heard Sony had interest. And I was like, hey, I kind of like that show. Um, And they were like, yay. Um, But yeah, the audience expectations are something that I think about a lot. Um, Not in the sense of I have to write a show that I know they'll like, but just wanting hoping that people understand kind of, you know, I am a fan as well, and uh, everybody's um, everybody's experience with a piece of IP is different. Um, you know, I'm a huge Buffy fan as well. I'm sure that my relationship with it is very different than Monica's, but probably similar in some ways, but not in every way. Um, and so how I interact with Night Vale in my head is probably different than how other fans do. So a lot of it was kind of like trying to not worry too much about that when I was in the breaking period of like what could this show be Um, because it's kind of weird and there are a lot of different elements to it that you could focus on oh it's a weird town oh it's a community radio program oh it's you know an ensemble and it's like which which one do you want to land on Um, and then I sort of realized that like I'm not going to make everybody happy like there's just no way that everybody who loves that podcast is, if the show goes, going to love the show. And so I just kind of have to write what I love and what I would be happy with um, and just hope that there is a segment of that population (laughs) that will come along with me for a ride. And also a segment of the population who doesn't listen to the podcast Mm -hmm. who would be interested in in that kind of show. That's great. I have a question. Yeah. Um, How much of that process of figuring it out did you do before you got the job and after you got the job. Because I'm still trying to figure out like how much free fucking work um, I have to do. I mean, right? I, I, to be fair, I am on a development deal, so yeah. I was on a deal yeah. when this came up and this was something that Sony was pursuing. And yeah. so it was a matter of, you know, meeting the guys who write the podcast and, you know, 
like sitting in a room with them and being like, please let me, please let me do your thing. And I yeah. promise I won't fuck it up. Um, yeah. So yeah, I mean, I was not technically working for free at that time because I was under a development deal. But um, this is a good question that I would yeah. ask of any of you. Like that idea of how, because now you go into Netflix, you have to pitch three seasons. Um, how much of this free work are you all doing? <laughs> It's a ton. It's yeah. like, yeah, I'm on hiatus right now, so all of it feels like free work, except for painkiller, which is blessedly a thing that I'm doing for, you know, that's that's already a thing. But um, I have a, a, an actor friend, an Irish actor friend, and uh, I, you know, if I'm like, oh, are you doing this? He's like, you doing somebody short film? Are you doing what are you doing right now? Are you doing a play? And he goes, oh, it's it's fracting, and I'm like, it's free acting. <laughs> and he's like, what are you doing? How are you, darling? What's going on? I'm like. It's writing. <laughs> it's all free writing. Um, and, you know, I mean, I'm married to another writer, and there is this sense in our house of, like, you know, just buckle up and do the work, and, and, and that's the way it is, and you're going to do a ton of free stuff. Some of the free stuff is for you, and some of the free stuff is for these beautiful shows that you create that never sell and just <laughs> turn into vapor, you know, but... Um, the mantra I always tell myself is like, I'm learning something from this. I'm going to cannibalize this for something else. I swear I'm going to use this someday. It's not just going to be, it's never wasted time. Mm -hmm. Although sometimes you can just sit in your office and be like, this is fucking wasted time. <laughs> I could be doing literally anything else. I could be reading a book. I could be watching another show or something. But yeah, it's, a, it's so much free work. Well, it seems, it seems to me that a lot of the requests for free work come from a place of fear yes. uh, on the, the buyer's side. It's, we, we need to feel secure in paying you to do this thing, so do all the free stuff first. But what's hard is when you go into pitch, and I would love to hear from every, everybody here who's like sold all this stuff, because I've sold certain things, and some things go and some things don't, but they want a... Uh, this is such a Tony Robbins thing of like a need for a need for a need for like certainty and a need for adventure mm -hmm. at the same time, and and that's what they want. They want certainty. They want to know you have all the secrets of the universe in your iPad or in your cards or in your head, however you pitch. But they also want to be enticed. So they want you to tell them everything, but they don't want you to tell them everything because they want to they want to be seduced, yeah. and and that's important too. So like the last. I've been back and forth working on a couple of pitches the last couple of months and trying to find that level of, I'm the kind of person who I will like arrest you for eight hours and tell you every single detail of this whole world and nobody wants that, obviously, right? Um, but at the same time, the 10 minute pitch is like, I haven't even gotten into the part where the angels come down, just, you know, <laughs> just give me five more minutes, you know? Uh, so, I mean, the balance of what do you keep and what do you, what do you not keep and walking into a room where, if you're pitching on a book, you have to assume no one's read that book. Even though the people you're bringing with you, the producers will have read it and they know it and you know, maybe you know the author, maybe that's going great. Podcast, they probably heard it, right? Because they're not readers. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I, they, I mean, and to be fair, it, they, it, they have to read a lot. Sure. And they all have families Absolutely. and it's, you know, I get that. But you I know, don't do, get it. <laughs> I want them to have read more, <laughs> but I never expect it. You know, I, that's the thing. So, uh, yeah, what's the balance for you guys of, of, like, uh, of like seduction and enticement versus, listen, here is a chart of five to seven seasons, and here are the points we're going to hit, and it's going to spike on Twitter, season four, because of this. Right. Just trust me. Like, what, how do we do that? Well, and the details that you think are important versus the ones that are important yeah. for telling that story. 
I mean, well, first of all, sometimes it doesn't help if they've listened to the podcast. I found that like I had better pitches on Night Vale when maybe they weren't as familiar with it because they have expectations if they've listened to it. They think this is going to be who you're following. This is going to be what the show is. And then if you don't meet those, then you're not you're not selling to that place. Um, it's a hard balance, and this is something I consistently struggle with. I am the person where I go in and I'm like, it's never the right amount of detail. Like if I overdo it. Uh, my agent's like, oh, wow, you really, apparently you gave a lot of detail. And then if I underdo it, it's like, oh, they want you to come back. And it's a hard balance. And so I think the thing that I have found is, because you're right, they want to know everything, but they don't want to know anything. What they really want to know is, do you know everything? Yeah. 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 And and if you can communicate that to them, then I think that's when you have a more sort of successful moment. Um, and so when it comes to details, I try to do a thing where like there are specific details that I highlight that are important to me that I feel like I can pitch really well because they're meaningful for me. And then they're like, oh, she has details. There must be more details. Um, it's not always successful, but I think that's the thing. It's like, do you have a point of view that's really strong? Can we, can we invest in you even if we don't have it all in our heads? Yeah. Monica, you were uh, uh, nodding your no, head during a, this. I mean, I have no answer to this because I struggle <laughs> with it all the time. And the one, the most successful pitch I had, which was Midnight Texas, I walk in and give them 30 minutes of a small town story. And it was based on a book that no one had read. And I was, they looked at me and said, turn around, Monica. And I turn around, and there's a picture of um, Jamie Alexander's back with all the tattoos on it, you know? And they're like, make it that, and you got a deal. And they walk out. I'm getting high fives from the producer. I'm like, what just happened? I didn't pitch that, though, at all. Like, it's a small-town soap opera. What is, what is this? And... And then... Before they picked up the show, because I was like, they're never making the show. The show, I got the pilot made. It was delightful. I had a really lovely time. I was in New Mexico. It was really pretty. And um, I was like, no one's ever doing the show. There's a talking cat. There's angels. I don't even, it's crazy town. But it was a small town soap with supernaturals. And I get called in. It's like, can you make it a demon of the week? Because if you can, you gotta sail. And I'm like, ah, what did I pitch? Why did I pitch? Just tell me what you want. This is a make your own adventure. So like, I don't, I don't 100% have answers because it was successful. It worked. And the show, as wackadoo as it was, got a second season. So in a strange way, I'm just like, all right, let me just go into this like little you know, rabbit hole and just figure out what's happening because no one knows. Like that's what's amazing to me. That this no is, one this knows. This is NBC. This was NBC, right? And what, what year was this? This uh, was like two years, two years, ago. Two years ago. ago. This was like right after we fucked up on Constantine and did a serialized oh, yeah. <laughs> show we with demons. And they, yeah, and they yeah. were like, "Can't you just make it like grim? Can't you just can't you just oh, no, do amazing. an exorcism of the week?" I was like, "But all exorcisms are kind of going to look the same if we do that." But you nailed it. So, <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah. Uh, I mean, it was just it was you work very hard on your pitches and you've worked very hard on creating a world in your mind that you understand and you know how to break the story, you know what the emotional arcs are, and then you just get thrown these things, like, pow! <laughs> Make it this! And you're like, all right! And I mean, you know, part of it for me is I always think of this job a little bit like a Project Runway challenge. Like, it's like, go to the 99 cent store and make a gown! And like, and I feel like that keeps me sane. Because otherwise I will go crazy when they tell me to make a gown out of, out of 
construction debris. But that's, you know, part of the fun of the job is like, all right, well, let's make a gown, I guess. That is very helpful advice. It is. I mean, there's a a lot of improv involved, right? In pitching and being in the room and selling a thing and making the thing all all down the line. Uh, Is there ever any comfort? Do you ever feel comfortable? Not for me. <laughs> no, I'm I'm the person who hates pitching probably the most. Well, the and worst. so I try to skate out of there with doing as little as possible. And so I try to keep it like like 20 minutes and I I do go into a lot of details about the character and I try to dance and say there's going to be this mystery and you're going to discover these things, you know, at the end of the season. But that's the rule of thumb for me, to try to get in, get out without having a heart attack. <laughs> there is a producer who will rename, remain nameless who said to me that if my writing career ever went south, that I could hire myself out as a pinch pitcher because I'm like a carnival huckster or something when I get in there. So I would like to offer my services to anyone who would like it. For some reason, I feed on it like a succubus. I don't know what it is. I've been drunk in there a couple times, too, and I have sold both those shows. I would like you to know. Uh, I went to Musso and Frank's, and I had three silver gin fizzes and a chicken pot pie. And I sold a show, which to, to the same people that, that Monica is talking about, I would like to say, but it was actually the previous regime. It was, it was Angela. Oh, yeah. And I sold Prime Suspect to Angela, and for some reason NBC thought it, ITV wanted it to be two hours long because it was British. I, I don't know. And so I wrote a two-hour pilot and <laughs> did however many notes on it, and then suddenly Angela was gone, and Bob was there. And it was like, oh, shit, that's a thing that happens. <laughs> you know, people come in, and, and he called, and he goes, if you can make it an hour, I'll pick it up. Wow. And I was like... <laughs> Because it's just arbitrary, right? It's just like, wow. just make it an hour. And you have five days to do it. If you can make it in an hour and five days, I'll pick it up. Like, why? Like, I, okay. So, yeah, did that. I mean, anyway. Something's working. Something's working. Um, no, I was just thinking about the, the process of that and the, the chaos of it. And it's sort of like the thing about at least in network, and it's, I think, maybe the complete opposite in cable, but in network, it's just so insane and so stupid the way <laughs> everything is run. Like, these random ideas, at the, and you've probably had the script for, like, four months, and then the last week they say, <laughs> yep. do this major change. Yeah. And it's like that for every step of the way. It's like yeah. that for casting. It's like that you're, you're basically, when you make a pilot, you're making a small company. You're hiring all of these department heads. And it's just insane how quickly you can kind of hire people, and you're trying to read writers' scripts, you know, so you can hire a good team, but you have to hire them in like a week. And so it's all so expensive for them and so stupid at the same time. Yeah. And so I'm just shocked. I'm just shocked that there isn't a better system. But um, we all kind of just ride the wave, I guess. Do you think that's why they give dumb notes? <laughs> like, no, but no, seriously, because I was on something recently where the notes came with pitches. Like, big story swings and, like, character stuff and, like, Stuff they shouldn't even have said out loud. Yes. And is it is it because they don't because they don't give us enough time to do anything? So is that they don't trust us or they don't trust what or they bought? They, they don't know what they want and they don't know what will work. 
So they're just like, fuck it, try all of this, you know? It's just like just throwing spaghetti at the wall, you know? I also find a lot of times, honestly, they don't actually understand what their note is. Like, mm. and so they throw out ideas because they're trying to solve their problem and they haven't actually figured out what their problem is. And so, you know, we always say, like, what's the note behind the note? Yeah. And like, it's a real thing. Like, I've gotten, I have been on things where you get this crazy note with some crazy suggestion. You're like, but no, but what is actually not working for you? Um, so I think sometimes that is actually what's going on. I think that's helpful, and I think if you jump in, and sometimes, this has worked 50% of the time, 50% of the time it's turned against me. If you say, wait, but how did you feel when you read that scene? And sometimes they're afraid to answer, and they get defensive, and they're upset. And sometimes, <laughs> isn't that, they, that's that's sometimes good. I'm kind of scared. I don't want to know that much about their yeah, lives. Sometimes, <laughs> I don't want to know what your mindset is. But sometimes it helps them find, like, I was really worried for blah, 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 whatever. And, and you get to a place of, like, you're supposed to feel tension because the next couple of scenes are going to alleviate that and then build it up. You know, so you can guide them to a place of leave it alone. Sometimes, sometimes. I mean. Or at least to putting in words right. the thing that they're having a problem yes. with. Or sometimes you just have to, like, know what you're willing to move on and yeah. what you're not. Uh, I was working on a different project where there was a whole discussion about changing the point of view, a different main character, and they had a suggestion for who that main character should be, and I was like, no, it's not going to be that person because it's it's sort of a antithetical to what the story is about, and uh, you, you're sitting across from the president of the network, and you have to say that, mm -hmm. and you have to just be willing to just fight it out and... Uh, Take what you, you know, fight for what you believe in. And what kind of reaction do you get to responding to that? Uh, first, there was a pause <laughs> because <laughs> it was like, oh. Uh, and then I had reasons, right? So I wasn't like, I was just like, no, your idea sucks. It was, I had a really significant reason why that, main, that character should not be the main character. And then we started to have a real discussion about it. And then I also had an idea of, as an alt, who could be the main character. Um, and so that they sort of, I swung them to my, my position. Um, but you gotta come armed with ideas. Right. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I mean, also it is very tempting to fight every battle mm -hmm. because they are so fucking stupid. Yeah. <laughs> totally. That, that you just wanna be like, who cares what the timeline is? Yes, everyone will know what he does for a living. <laughs> like all of the notes that you always yeah. get, but I do find as much of a hack as it sometimes makes me feel like I am, to pick your battles does help yeah. you win those battles. That yeah. if you don't have a reputation being a person who will literally fight everything to the death, that then when the really important thing comes up and you go, no, I'm actually not going to change it so it's linear, you're not going to find out the answer till the end of the episode. And they hit it in outline, and they hit it in script, and they hit it in, uh, in the first cut, and they hit it in the, the next cut, and you go, I'm not doing it. They go... Well, I guess you you don't usually like you're yeah. you're not usually this like totally. really strong yeah. willed yeah. about a thing. Thousand percent agree with yeah, that. Yeah, so then you don't do it. You don't do their yeah. stupid right. note. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was gonna say like you know like we're pretty lucky on Walking Dead. I don't know if this is just an AMC thing or if it's just the show having been it's successful. They don't give us a lot of notes, but sometimes it's like 
I don't really agree with like these four notes, but I'm going to take them anyway because there's going to be that one where yeah, it's yeah. like I got to fight with you a little bit, and you know, and and they're they're cool about that, but it is almost like a percentages game. Like you kind of go like, okay, well, if I don't take that one, but if I take these ones, then it sort of balances out. And yeah. Yeah. I had been given I, the oh sorry, I'd been given the advice of uh, there's always one you shouldn't take. On principle. Yes. There's always yes, one you I should throw out. Yes, I totally agree. And I was agree. like, what? <laughs> He's like, just trust me, trust me, yes. trust me. And I'm like, okay, yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, just because I've never done anything based on real life before, I'm getting notes from legal. Yeah. Oh my God. And some of them are dialogue pitches. Oh. It's a whole new level of hell where you're just like, yeah, no, thank you. I get the point that he actually wasn't charged with murder. He was charged with aggravated manslaughter, but I can write the dialogue. Yeah. I really can. So, yeah, the, the, that's what, if you're going to do something true, you're, you're going to get that. And I didn't realize that. The, the other thing is sometimes there are lots of um, failed or aspiring writers in various yes. parts of the executive ranks and infrastructure, so um, that happens sometimes. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, is there... Let me steer this in this direction. Uh, <laughs> is there an expectation as a woman writer, a female showrunner, that you're going to take a note in a different way to a male showrunner or writer? Do you mean better? I don't know. Do you mean without talking about it? (laughs) Maybe. I don't know. Do you think that that expectation exists? I don't don't know what the expectation is, but I know that I've heard people say, like, oh, how how did LaToya react to that note? I don't know if that happens to guys, but, I mean, I mean, it's, it's a thing. Yeah. No. I mean, I, I, you know, I think the idea, and just I know for me personally, there's a lot of socialization being a woman of like wanting to, you know, make peace with people, and so it's less, I think, maybe on like an executive's part, and more on my part of understanding like where where am I just trying to sort of like make everybody happy, and where am I? No, that's actually a note I can take. Like they're making a real point. So I think for me, it's more of a personal thing of understanding and being really like vigilant about like when am I just sort of you know falling into my programming <laughs> and when am I like oh no that's a you know I have gotten smart notes they do exist and you know it's sort of understanding when you can use those um I do find that uh like when I was pitching around I do I I did find that like different executives fairly split on gender lines would sort of react to me in different ways while I was pitching in the sense of like uh, anybody who interrupted me during my pitch was always like an older man. Like, you know, there's yeah. definitely a certain, you can kind of, there's, and again, it's, of course, it's not everybody, but there's definitely little patterns right. that you notice. And I would say that um, I've worked with a lot of sort of big personality male showrunners, and the tantrums that they could throw, I don't think I could throw. No. I don't think I could no. hang up on an executive and no. say, fuck that, no. I'm like, I'd be fired. I really do feel like they'd call me and say, fuck you, gone. Yeah. So, like, I, I've seen behaviors that, nor would I want to, to be honest. Like, I'm not a tantrum thrower, so I don't, I feel like we can talk about it. But, um, <laughs> but I do know that there are behaviors I've seen that would be treated very differently if a woman did. Or I, or I, mean, I suspect mm-hmm. a woman would be treated differently. Because I've seen male showrunners throw tantrums that have 
terrified executives and then suddenly they won't give notes which trust me I've been tempted to do but I just feel like it won't get the same fear response I mean I've worked with a lot of people who go with the we will look at that we'll take a look at that we'll look at that yeah all right maybe we'll do that one okay and and just sort of very calmly going through the whole thing and, and I'm kind of watching like okay is this is this how it's done okay cool um and then later on you you find a way to sort of implement that or you do something completely different that you wanted to do and say mm-hmm. god your note gave me that <laughs> amazing idea for me to do this thing that is completely not that <laughs> but you're a genius and and uh, yeah so there is that you know and you try you try to make and maintain relationships because mm-hmm. these are people just trying to live their lives and do their jobs the same way we are but um it's Hard work. If you can buy, it depends. Network, it's hard. Cable, it's easier. Uh, film, it's a little easier. If you can buy yourself a like 12 to 24 hour cooling off period, so you have the call and everybody's on the call and it's like, okay, 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 unless there's something that's like really egregious and world breaking that you need to have it out right there, like this aggression will not stand. We have to do it right now. Holding on to it for a little bit. And then looking at it with fresh eyes the next day and being like, what can I implement? What can I change and look like I implemented? What's the one I'm going to say no to? You know, and then if there's something that pops up the next day that's really, really world-breaking, having a private conversation. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I've learned that from men, honestly. <laughs> but it works, I guess. What do, what do we do in the moment where the notes, you're on the phone, and the note is fundamentally insulting <laughs> like and I'm talking about I'm talking like bias like either misogynist or racist like because my instinct and this is I think this has saved me a lot is to immediately start a ticker in my head and put myself on delayed time and it just goes and when it goes bing I'm usually somewhere I can be like fuck you know but it's but sometimes you have to like, because sometimes they have to know. I feel like they have to know in the moment that they said some shit. But then as soon as you make them know that they said some shit... You get defensive. Yes. And then you might not get other stuff through. And then you might not. It's, it's tough. How do... Why do what do have you, you all, do? Have you all dealt with this? How do you walk that line if you do? I remember one character that was... This is a ridiculous hour... Or, 12 hours of my life where they wanted this character in something super sexy and they decided this girl has to wear a tube top and it was not a period piece it was supposed to be in contemporary times she's a grown ass woman I don't understand the tube top and it was all about making her sexy which was not a character who was sexual in fact she was the opposite of it and I had to write three letters up the flagpole single space one page letters articulating why that character, because it was sexist and it was bullshit, but I can't say you're being sexist. You're paying for the show, you're gonna fire me. So I went through this exercise of, these are all the reasons this one character would never wear a tube top to garden in. (laughs) And, And eventually they agreed, but it took a lot of writing but I couldn't say, that's ridiculous. Stop being an asshole and don't put her in a tube top. Why would she wear a tube top? Well, but, and, and yeah, but it's to, like, yeah. but it's almost like, I don't know how to do it in a way. I'm just always about preserving the moment on screen. 
Yeah. <laughs> it's like a means I don't need to change you. Right. Someone else has to, but I can get what I need from you. Did that come in, in the uh, when you were in prep, or did it come at the script it was, stage? Uh, no, it was we were shooting, mm-hmm. oh, no. and it was two days into like that scene, and she was not gonna wear it either, and it was just. It, but it was also like we're shooting a pilot. Are we seriously spending this much time mm-hmm. talking about a tube top? Because I'm not sleeping ever. Well, and, and often this stuff is coming from someone in power, right? Someone who is giving you the money to make this thing. Yeah. Or if you are on staff as a writer, someone yes. who, you know, is running the show. Yeah. It's your job to serve this person. Um, so let's get back to the stuff that we started talking about, uh, Sharon and Christine. You alluded to a conversation that you had backstage, uh, working for uh, male showrunners and dealing with this kind of stuff. Yeah, this was more of a nuts and bolts. Yeah. The going into work, how, what your work life is like. You know, there's always that practical thing. Practical advice. Of, practical advice. You know, there's always that thing of like <laughs> when you have the first meeting. If they're like, uh, I live sort of like mid, mid-city, mid right? So they're like, uh, you know, where's the meeting? If, if it's in Santa Monica, I'm like, oh, there's a good gym I like out there. That can be, it's not terrible. I, you know, you think about that shit. Because mm-hmm. you're like, I'm going to spend the next like nine months going back and forth. I mean, okay. It's like, it's in Encino. I'm like, oh, I love Encino, but it's really fucking far. <laughs> you know, so you, you start to think about those things, but you need work. So you, you know, whatever. The nuts and bolts of how the office is structured if you are able to come in early and stay late if you want to, if you're someone who has a, a loud house or whatever and you want to, you want to, or for whatever reason, like to work in the office late. We were talking about this backstage, like mm-hmm. the creepy, it all started with the, the creepy staircase at the parking garage around the corner. <laughs> if anybody wants to walk there with us, we're all going to be going in a gang to, to find our cars later. Because the elevator's out, which was also creepy. Um, and we were just talking about, we were talking about um, how few of us work on real lots anymore because things don't shoot here as much, right? So like when I started, in L- when I first moved to LA, I was, an assist- I was a writer's assistant on Gilmore Girls. That's the Warner lot. It was running 24-7. West Wing was shooting. ER was blowing up a helicopter. There was craft service you could steal from. There was always something going on. And we worked like all night. Like I'd, I'd drive back home to shower and nap and, and come back to work. And it, it was intense and it was awesome. Female showrunner, you know, and director, amazing. But we were all work in like offices. And so there are some pretty, we were happy, I mean, you guys want to jump into these, like, some of these harrowing stories of, like, shit going down. Men don't think about it. You know, like, oh, I have to, like, on. So tell us the things, please, men don't think about. So we were just looking for, oh, my God, I have so many stories about the office. So the the building that The Walking Dead was in, very nice, we were at the CNN building in Hollywood. It's across from the world's sketchiest Jack in the Box. Like, it is is actually known as the world's sketchiest Jack in the Box. Um, Like, somebody was actually murdered in the street below our writer's room, like just walking around with like a, like a knife sticking out of their chest and things. So that happened. Um, you know, one of our assistants was followed from, you know, the, there's, the parking garage is not attached. So she went to the gym. I was working late. She, she came, was coming back to get some stuff. And a dude like just followed her through the alley and then followed her into the building. There's security in the building. They're just like, do, 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 do. Oh, it's not weird at all that this, like, 
you know, 20 something girl is like walking really fast to the elevators and some like sketchy dude is walking behind her, trailing her. She goes in the elevator and he like sticks his arm in, like the elevator doors close. And then at that point, security's like, oh, this seems like an incident. And like, you know, he's like, she's in the elevator, like frantically pushing buttons, like he's stuck there. But, you know, like, these things happen. And then we were looking for new office building. Like, this wasn't even the stuff that, like, precipitated that. We were already looking for a new office building. But, you know, it's like some of the guys who were pre-scouting stuff, they looked at some things, and then I went to a building. And I was like, I look at the building, and I'm like, okay, well, where, where's the parking? And they're like, well, there's this many spots right here. And I'm like, where's the rest of the parking for everybody else? And it's like, oh, it's just around the corner. It's like like a block and a half away. And I'm like you know who's going to be there are the female assistants who are there late at night after everybody else is gone and they're going to have to walk at night over to the satellite parking. That's what's going to happen. And like, that's not acceptable. And like, where's the security? It's like, there's no security desk. But it's like, they literally, like, they had looked at all this other stuff for the building that's like, well, this works and this works. And, you know, it's like a nice... Nice floor, nice layout. And I'm like, these are sort of like fundamental things that like when you're a working woman, like it can be dangerous to have to walk in the middle of the night by yourself to your car. It makes it like an unworkable situation. And so, you know, it's like we're talking about that stuff and other people had their stories too. I feel like everybody's got one of these stories like that. And there was a show that I worked on where I, I, I usually would prefer to work at home and I usually do work at home. But there was one show I worked on where the, the, it was a lovely atmosphere in the office and one other writer who was at my level and he and I were like, we just bonded and we both were on script at the same time, both times in the, in the season. So both times we would have the assistant get us dinner and then send him away for the night. But I knew that I couldn't stay a hair later than him. Mm-hmm. Yes. Be, you know, and he... You know, having two daughters and a, and a wife was uh, cognizant of it. And at some point, I think I mentioned it, but I was like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't come here without you here. Yeah. And he's like, oh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, dude, we're, we walked our cars together. I mean, it, we're friends, but also, I'm not walking out to my car all the way down there alone at what was like three in the morning because we were on a network deadline. So that's a thing. And we're, we're talking about parking, but like real talk. Mm. I, you know, I was on a show where on set, the security guard was kidnapped and assaulted. Oh yes. Set is a whole other thing. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Kidnapped. The security guard was kidnapped and assaulted. So when time came now for the women to go to set, <laughs> the response was, actually, I don't even know what the response was. The response was, fuck you. That's what the response was. We don't have a security was. guard. Right. The response was, fuck you. And there was a woman who went to set before me um, who managed to be put in a hotel away from the rapists um, and not have to pay for it. But when time came for me to go to set, things were a little different. I'm not going to say why. Um... <laughs> For those listening, I pointed at my dark, beautiful brown skin and my gorgeous hair. But things, it's really pretty. Things, things really were, pretty. were different. And I didn't bother to have that conversation. I just paid. I just paid for my own safety. Because when it comes down to it, it's about quality of life. And I didn't, my mother didn't make me to come there to die on, on their set over $170. So, you know, it's, and that's a lot of stuff that 
unfortunately, our, our, our male showrunners and shit don't think about. Yeah, I also think there's a general awareness in, in an office setting, too. Um, I've been in offices where, like, there is someone who is maybe being a little creepy to somebody else. And, like, various people don't notice it. You know, I think with I think especially for women in this society, we're hyper-attuned to what's going on around us and, and who people are and also kind of keeping an eye out for other women, especially younger women who are in lower positions of power in the office. And so I have had moments where, like, I've noticed somebody is talking a lot to an assistant and I will just do the thing where I go and I say, hey, I just want to make sure everything's okay and, like, you are okay with this person paying a lot of attention to you. And usually they're like, yep, totally fine, but sometimes not. And so I think that's a thing that would be wonderful if more showrunners across the board and upper-level people across the board would be more aware of is that there are operators out there who are taking advantage of their positions with especially lower level people um, and they seem fine and they seem great because they manage up um, but you know you need to be aware of that stuff yeah there's a lot of like it, it, I, as you go further in your career looking at the women who are coming up and just just intervening like oh hey sis do you need your time card signed did you get that just making up some bullshit to interrupt a conversation and it, it happens all the time and on set, keeping an eye on set, even when you're not, like, I'm kind of a set rat, and I love going to set, even when it's far away. But stuff happens out there, and sometimes the showrunner's very busy with stuff, and if you're, like, the number two or the number three, you're going to get the calls. So you'll get the calls, and sometimes you'll get the calls from other women who don't want to complain. And I get that, because I don't want to complain, except to my husband, and he has to hear it all the time. Uh, and my sister, she gets in the earful of everything. But, um, but, you know, they'll call you and be like, okay, so the location's really far, and I'm in, on this side of the city, and they want me to have a rental car, but they won't let Transpo pick me up, but Transpo's sitting right there. It's those little things of, like, Transpo versus a rental car. Some of us are New Yorkers and shitty drivers, as me. But, and, and some people are, are perfectly competent drivers, but are not going to be able to do... 12 to 14 hours on set and drive themselves across a town, a city they don't know, yeah. that's, yeah. you know, that half of it's like woods, you know, yeah. we, we all shoot in the woods and stuff. It, it, you know, you got to make a safe space for them to come to you and then, and then I would go to the showrunner and say, okay, so-and-so doesn't feel safe, this person doesn't feel safe, people on set aren't listening to them, we have to like fix this. Yeah. yeah. This is, I mean, everything you all have mentioned is great advice to any showrunner listening or anyone who's going to be a showrunner listening. So I want to ask for some more of that, uh, whether it's about being in the room, whether it's about, you know, it, it, it doesn't have to be gender based, uh, whether it's about being on script, whatever it is, something that you have had a good experience with a showrunner that you would like to see more showrunners do, something you wish a showrunner had done for you. I feel like Alex has all the answers. <laughs> all right i'm gonna punt down there <laughs> we're coming for you next i like i like a captive audience let me and a, and a captive listenership let me talk to the white guys white guys be a credit to your race okay a lot of you are going to get further faster if your agents tell you you're not getting a job because of diversity or because of hashtag me too, they're lying. You're not good. 
Because white guys get jobs. I don't hate white guys. Some of my best friends are white guys. I've dated a white guy, and then I married him. He's in the back. I'm not angry. I'm not angry. So, when you get there, and you will, hire the women. Hire the people of color. We are not a threat. You know who's the threat? The people who look like you. They want your job. We just want our job so that we can learn and then create jobs for other people. We don't want your job. You look miserable sometimes. We don't want. We don't want your job. We just want ours. We are not a threat, but we are coming for you. We are coming. And when we get there, look at the stage. Look at the stage. We're coming for you, but drunkenly and very slowly. Like, <laughs> you know. When, when we get there, and we will, we will remember who was cool and who wasn't. I don't forget a fucking thing. I will remember who was cool and who wasn't. If you're not cool, fake it. If you see people who are not cool and you're cool, say something. Please, say something. If you're not in a position to say something, remember, and then when you get there, which you will, be cool. <laughs> All right, let's get to your questions. If today you guys were back to being a staff writer or an assistant looking for a job, and in a world in which more and more showrunners look like you and not like they always have, who would you want to work for and why? Who's great out there right now? Oh. It's nice to say nice oh, things about people. <laughs> I'd probably want to work for Shonda Rhimes. I, um, I love everything she does, and she seems like an amazing person. And she also seems like, for me, like sort of like a god. Like, I, I've never met her. I just hear about her, and like I know people have seen her. So, um, so probably her. She's like a celestial being. Yeah. <laughs> no one's ever seen, but we believe in. Uh, I'd want to work for Angela. Yeah. Who, who I actually she, am working for right wait, now. So. She, she's running a freelance right? Walking Dead for me, and she's amazing. So, oh, so yeah. give me a freelance wool someday. Yes. <laughs> That's awesome. I would work for literally anybody on this stage. You're all amazing. Um, not sucking up for reals. Um, outside of this stage, I'm a huge fan of the magicians. I would love to work for Sarah Gamble. I think yeah. she's a genius. Yes. Um, and a bunch of other people, but you know, yeah, yeah. These are good answers. Thank you. When you started your first writing jobs, were you expected to already know the voice of the showrunner, or was there room, a little bit of trial and error, to learn the language of the show or um, understand what the showrunner wanted in your scripts? If you have a good showrunner, <laughs> um, there's there is leeway. Um, I mean, if you are this is your first staff job, you should go in and make your best effort to capture the voice of the show, one hundred percent, absolutely. But good showrunners understand that um, everyone's voice is unique, and it's hard to capture exactly someone's voice. And that's what the notes process is for: is to help you. Um, get more in line with what the voice and tone of the show is and it's about going into that notes process with that open mind and wanting to learn and just being able to sort of absorb without um, either getting defensive or, you know, the shame spiral. Right. 
Like, because yeah. no one's going to get it right. No one is, everyone gets noted, notes, unless you're the showrunner, and then you're getting notes from the executives. Yeah. 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 That is a bizarre thing, that we hire people because they have unique voices, and then we expect them to imitate yeah, us they. for the first three years. Yeah. It's, you know, the, it's, it's what Jen is saying, that, like, you should let your freak flag fly, because that's the way the person's going to see what you're actually able to do. And then you'll probably get rewritten some, mm-hmm. yeah. and that's okay because it's a learning yeah. process. And I also feel like it really, my first job was the third year of Charmed. And so you have three, two years of 24 episodes. So at that point, after 48, they, it does start getting in your head. So I think that it also depends on has the show been around for a long time? Because on a new show, it's going to be trial and error. There's just no one who walks out of a pilot. That was eighth season of NYPD Blue. Like, who couldn't write siblings <laughs> at that point? <laughs> but it's like, just leave out the pronouns. Use the word scumbag a lot. Like, it was just, you know. Yeah, yeah and on a technical level, too, you have to make sure, then it's the easiest thing to do, but make sure your script looks exactly like the other scripts. Yes. Yes. Like you the know, I've gotten scripts manager. where it's like all in caps, you mm. know, and it's like, have you not read the 50 <laughs> other scripts ahead of this? So, you know, like little yeah. things like that. Specific use of like uh, slang and, and swear words and all kinds of yeah. stuff that are very specific to showrunners' voices. If you can yes. absorb that, like trying to get there, like Once Upon a Time is written in a very specific way and getting that out of my head after like six months, I loved writing that way. Trying to get it out of my head six months later is very, very hard. Which is, I think, to to Monica's point, like if the show exists, great, go watch those, you know, forty episodes, but also read the scripts that are coming through and read them through a few times. Because a lot of showrunners will have things like that showrunner didn't like lines that were longer than three lines. Mm. Like and it would bother him. If you did a fourth, he'd be like, I don't like this. And he would never say it's because it's four lines. It's like no. it's always overwritten. Yeah. Yeah. But you realize anything more than three, you're going to get notes on. So it's kind of there's a sort of math to it, oddly. Well, you pick up people's quirks, right? Yeah, and sometimes you're there, season one. And I will like shout out to Steve Lightfoot, who runs Punisher. You know, right from jump, he had been developing it way before he hired us. Right? He had two scripts written, and he had a whole Bible. He knew exactly what the, the season was going to be and what the show was going to be, and he has a very strong voice. But he brought us in based on samples of ours that he fell in love with. And it, he was very much about, like, he wanted you to argue with him. He wanted you to do things that, that you, you know, like, I wasn't going to do a big run-and-gun uh, sequence. That's not the strongest thing that I do. So I did like the gross medical thing, the horrifying nightmare, like that shit that I'm good at. So like, <laughs> you know, he made a room of people who were very, very, uh, who had different skill sets, and we were allowed to um, contribute to the voice of the show. And he is secure enough to le- to let it happen. Sure. So that was a nice, nice thing to do. Thank the you. first draft I ever wrote was 79 pages long. Don't do that. <laughs> yes. What was that? Was that NYPD Blue? Yeah, and I remember Stephen Boschko called me from his car on the way in, and he was like, yeah, so when I get there, can you come to my office? Because there's like a thing I want to talk to you about. I'm like, okay. Like I had... it, it is death to cut down an episode when you have no time, and it's like, I got to cut five pages out of this. Could you have done this before you gave it to me? Um, do you think as a television writer, you have to, like, when you're starting a pilot or a new project, do you think you have to know exactly when it's going to end? And, like, 
at the level where you're just like in your room doing it, not when you're like taking it to people. But like novel writers or film writers, like they don't always know um, how, where the story is going to end or where the plot point's going to be. But like as a television writer, do you feel like you have to know that a bit more? Like do you need to know the structure and the narrative or just the moments and the characters? Sorry, that was really. Um, if it's oh, that's a, a good question. If it's a spec pilot for me, I, like I drink a lot of whiskey and I treat it like it's a play. I treat it like it's a piece of prose. I have buoys. Maybe I know what the ending is. You know, I kind of know where I'm swimming towards. Mm -hmm. But you know, I might, I might go that way. I might go that way. I might go straight in a straight line. I, I want to find stuff. You know, if I'm not on a, a deadline, if it's just for me, if it's just a spec pilot. And I say just, not in a diminutive way, but in a, but in a, a, a lack of pressure way. Um, allow yourself uh, the time to let the characters, here's where I sound crazy, to let the characters talk to you and tell you what they want to do. Because if you get into like the wedding scene and you're all about doing this like beautiful wedding scene and the groom is like, fuck this, I'm leaving. You're like, wait, what? Go with that. And see, maybe your ending changes. Maybe that's your ending. You don't know. If it's a spec pilot, let let it let your freak flag fly. Let it come through. Let the spirit come through you. Whatever it is, um, you can always in your, on your second pass. You can always go in and structurally fix stuff up. I think if you're pitching a show, though, you kind of want to know where the end of the season is and maybe have some thoughts about the second season. All of that may change, but it's a it's a good idea to have that nailed down. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's the important point is even if you have an idea of where you think it might end, uh, that's not carved in stone. That can always change. And so if it's helpful when pitching or if it's helpful mm -hmm. for you to write it and get words on paper, sure, have your ending and then just be open to that discovery as you go. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good answer. Um, thank you so much. Uh, thanks to all of you for being here. Thanks for indulging me for 400 episodes. Uh, I'm humbled and flattered that you showed up. I'm humbled and flattered that all of you showed up. This is a killer panel. Give them a round of applause. Um, I want to I wanna wrap up, as we always do, starting here with Cheryl. Tell us what you are watching on TV these days. What's getting you excited or oh inspired? God. Okay, so exciting. Random acts of flyness. You guys are taking pictures? Hey. <laughs> no. um, ran, random acts of flyness. It's You're too this, shy for this. <laughs> it's, um, it's this thing. It's, I don't even know what it is. You guys, you guys heard of this, HBO. right? It's on HBO. It's done by this young black dude uh, who collaborates with a bunch of other people. I hope they're all young and black too. And they, like, the last episode I watched was all about gender identity mm -hmm. and its fluidity, like with some black folks though who don't normally talk about that shit. And, and the first episode was about uh, ch raising children and, and police violence, and it had this angel of death kind of musical number in the middle. It's really fucking interesting. And it's searing, and I think it's important, and it's weird, like all the things that black people are not allowed to be. Mm -hmm. um, so it's beautiful. Um, and I'm gonna stop there. That's good. That's a good answer. Cool. Christine. I think the things I forgot to mention last time and we freaked out about afterwards was Glow. Oh, my God. Glow season two did that thing where, like, season two of everything is really fucking hard and the room is, like, really fucking hard and everybody gets crazy. And coming onto a show season two is like, uh, you're all fresh and they're all, like, wanting to cut each other and themselves <laughs> and you because you're new. Um, I don't know what went on in that room. 
Season two of Glow is so good and so much even, even better than season one, which I loved, so Glow. Uh, I mentioned The Magicians, which I love so much. I watch it live on Wednesday nights with commercials. <laughs> just go on my phone. I don't watch anything live, but I watch that. I just finished Legion season two, and I feel like I can't judge it because it's part of a longer story, so I'm just going to sit here and wait. Uh, keep on going. I'm going to see what happens. And what was the most important thing? I can't wait to go home and watch the Venture Brothers tonight. I'm on a diet. Is the candy in the back of my head I get to have? I'm like, oh, my candy is getting to watch the Venture Brothers. It's only on every two years. Yeah. And it's the mythology. Those guys are killing it. Like, the mythology is so... Uh, so intertwined and <laughs> dense and just beautiful. And there are... They've really grown over the seasons, there are moments of real caring and beauty on a show that should be like a superhero parody, but it isn't. It's gorgeous. So. That's great. That yeah. almost never gets mentioned, so I'm glad you brought Love it up. Love that show. Angela, what are you watching? It's, I'm behind on everything, but I, I fucking love The Good Place. Do you guys yeah. see this comedy? Can I just say, like, it is like the best sci-fi show out there, yeah. and it's funny as fuck. It's so good. It's great acting, great writing, all around great, great, great. Let um, me uh, pause you there for a yeah. second. I'm going to recommend another podcast. Uh, <laughs> if you are not listening to The Good Place podcast and you like this podcast, you will love that podcast. Uh, it's hosted by Mark Evan Jackson, who plays Sean on the show. Uh, and he does an amazing job talking to usually a writer and an actor, and they just go episode by episode and talk through the process of making the show. It's so good. Is Sean the hot Asian guy? No. Oh, okay. Never mind. He is the whitest guy on the show. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> got really excited there for a minute. I'm sorry. So, Angela, anything else? Oh my God! I I also I love Better Call Saul. Like I love love Better right. Call Saul, and um, I watch a lot of Netflix comedy specials. Mm-hmm. Like I love. I just watched like a bunch of Dave Chappelle stuff. I watched an Ali Wong special. Like I it's, I tend to do comedy when I'm not writing. Yeah, so that's great. Jenny, uh, my two favorite things that I've watched recently, and again I'm a little behind, so they're not super recent. Um, very different shows. Uh, the Terror, which was like spectacular. Like, char- if you want to study characterization, like, watch The Terror. It is a boat full of like a million British dudes, and yet they're all like really interesting, differentiated characters. So good. And they're white. And they're all white. They're all and white. And I love them. They're all white. I know, me too. I was like, but, but like, turn the subtitles on because yeah. you will be able to understand much better. Um, and then the other show I love, which is very different, um, Killing Eve, which I thought was amazing and so, like, weird and different and, like, very, like, unusual female characters that you don't get to see a lot. And my absolute favorite thing about that show was actually um, Sandra O's, like, marriage. And, and, like, anytime anybody on the show was like, oh, he's gonna think you're having an affair, she's like, yeah, right. And and that's not something you see a lot. So, Killing Eve, definitely. That's great. My jam is The Crown. Yes! I know, I'm like such a history nerd, but like this past season was phenomenal. It is one of the most gorgeous shows ever made. They had this amazing episode with Jack and Jackie Kennedy that I absolutely adored. I thought it was phenomenal. Um, So that's my number one jam. And then my number two jam is Pose on FX. Uh, I just had not seen a world like that. The characters are so well drawn and so funny and heartfelt and... God is just just glorious every week. Yeah, great answers, Alex. 
Um, I work on the Universal a lot, so I walk up to the Good Place set at lunchtime oh and sit oh my in front God. of the yogurt places. Um, I want to visit you at work. Uh, Saul, all day long. Uh, just can't get enough of it. Um, I've been watching uh, Fauda. Mm-hmm. You got to watch it in the original Hebrew, though. You got you to go into those subtitles and make sure you're yeah, doing it's, it right. It's on Netflix. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's on Netflix. And uh, Gomorrah. Because oh, Gomorrah yeah. is the Italian mob garbage yeah. people. Oh my god! And uh, I feel like the guy that wrote it is in like witness protection or something. Like anyway, it's amazing. And uh, and uh, Barry. Oh, that's, I love I would Barry. like to recommend Barry because every episode I was like, oh no, that's it. They fucked it up. And then they would <laughs> totally turn it on its head and get you back. I'd be like, you're gonna. I hate him now. I hate him. And then. And then they would always, like, get it back by the end of the episode. I, I almost want it to be over at the end of the season because I just feel yes. like they can't keep that going. But, and then also, naked and afraid, people. <laughs> Where are you? Where are my naked and afraid <laughs> tribe? Anyway. <laughs> it's nice to know you're, you're we, down here in the garbage with yeah. the rest are of we us. Do, are we Sometimes doing reality? Are we doing reality all day? As well? like, you can't reality. follow narrative. You need to just watch things <laughs> that have been blurred out and people arguing over who's going to eat this crab that's like this big and going like, I mean, he just doesn't listen to anything I say. You can't build the tent under the spider web. Like, it's so gross. If, if we're, if we're, if we're able to do reality... <laughs> So, I'm it's so disgusting. I just like when the when the people go in the water. I just have like thoughts of things going in places they shouldn't go, and so it's really creepy. It's a horror show. Uh, I have to add very quickly. I, go ahead. RuPaul's Drag Race. You have to sure. RuPaul's Drag Race because that is the, the closest yeah. to putting people in a room, having them hate each other to create stuff. Uh, in, in a way that is not at all like writing and is ex- the dynamics are exactly like a writer's room. So RuPaul's Drag Race all day long. That's very funny. Caroline. Um, Better Call Saul is my favorite show. Absolutely. But um, Succession, mm-hmm. I loved. Even though when I started watching, I was like, is this the worst show ever? But, really? they, but then I just couldn't stop watching and I'm obsessed with it. So but it, I loved is it, it actually good? Should I watch the show? Should I I, I loved it. I, I loved it. I, I, I thought I hated it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what to think. <laughs> Monica. Um, I've been spending the summer with my 13-year-old son who loves animation. So I've been watching Adventure Time and Steven Mm -hmm. Universe. Um, And they make me weep. Like, they're some of the most beautiful storytelling in cartoon form. And, um... um, Oh, gosh, I don't watch... I mean, I'm so tired. That's a good answer. Okay, I'm done. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you all so much. One more round of applause for our panelists. Thank you all so much for being here. Now is the time for you to call up your local comic book shop and pre-order The Only Thing I Care About, my new Vertigo comic called Hex Wives. It's about witches, and it's about gender politics. Does that sound fun? Probably not, but it is. The artist is amazing. The colorist is amazing. The editors are unbelievable. Uh, I'm just hanging on for dear life and hoping that people buy this so I can tell dozens and dozens of stories in this world. So please... Call up your local comic book shop. If you don't know where it is, go to comicshoplocator.com, put in your zip code, and uh, order that comic, Hexwives. It comes out on Halloween. You just tell them you want it. 
They'll hold a copy for you, and then you go to the store and buy it. It's easy. It's like $4. And I think you're going to like it. I do. Thank you for listening to the Writers' Panel. Tune in next Tuesday and every Tuesday for a brand new episode. And in the meantime, please subscribe and review the Writers' Panel on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. And follow me on Twitter, at Ben Blacker, just like it sounds. And let me know who you want to have on the show. The Writers' Panel is a co-production of the Forever Dog Podcast Network and the ATX Television Festival. You can listen to more Forever Dog podcasts at foreverdogpodcast.com and keep up with the ATX Fest throughout the year at atxfestival.com. Thank you, and see you next week. Well, you'll hear me next week. Thanks for subscribing. Forever Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram, at Forever Dog Team, and liking our page on Facebook.